So, I hope you're all here for the um, lecture on artists' names and artists' lives. Now, when you go to a library or visit a museum, watch a documentary on television or on your computer, or track down an image on the internet, um, I bet you probably uh, usually pay little or no attention to the fact that all these activities are usually organized under the names of individual artists. Indeed, much of art history, broadly defined, assumes that focusing on artists by name is a perfectly natural and normal thing to do. In actual fact, however, categorizing artworks as the products of named individuals is not a universal concept, and one that didn't even exist in Western Europe, let alone anywhere else, for many centuries between the later classical period and the Renaissance. Indeed, the norm, from a worldwide and transhistorical perspective, is probably that of the anonymous craftsman or group of artisans, rather than the single identifiable named artist. So the very idea of naming artists is not a universal phenomenon, and many cultures, both past and present, do not even record, let alone reverentially pronounce <coughs> in hushed tones, the names of individual <coughs> artists. In fact, the early 15th century painter seen at work on the right, and that's a, uh, a an early 15th century um, relief of a painter uh, working on a canvas or a panel probably, um, or the late 20th century Chinese craftsman on the left who produced objects, images, buildings, sculptures, um, and what have you, things that we might now study in an art history course, are often completely unacknowledged or at best recorded only as names in the payment records or account books of rich patrons and powerful institutions. But can we actually do art history the way we do it here, without reference to artists' names, as the artist Heinrich Wolfle proposed in 1915? An art history without names is what he called for. And if we did, what kind of an art history might this look like? For instance, maybe we don't really need artists' names to write a perfectly respectable history of the devotional function of altarpieces in medieval Europe, or the iconography of Buddhist sculpture in Tibet. But when we do use artists' names, as is so often the case, we need to think very carefully about who is doing the naming and why. Or, to quote Shakespeare, what's in a name? Would that which we call a rose by any other name smell as sweet? Just to shift our references for a moment. When talking about artworks in our own day and age, things apparently do smell sweeter, or at least command a lot more cash, depending on how they are named. In fact, in the case of this 17th century painting showing the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem, the value of having one name rather than another can be put precisely at 8,040,000 US dollars. <coughs> this was the difference in price from when the painting was first sold at auction at Sotheby's in 1995 as a work by the artist Pietro Testa, to its reselling just four years later under the name of a much better known artist. Initially, the heirs of the painting's owner, a man who had made his fortune in the ham business, were told that the painting, under Testa's name, should be valued at only $17,000. Keen bidding in the sale room on the day of the 1995 auction brought the price up to $260,000. But once it had been officially reattributed a few years later to the famous Baroque painter Nicolas Poussin by the art historians Sir Denis Mon and the Louvre curator Pierre Rosenberg, it was resold for $8.3 million. It is not, however, only Poussin's name that is of interest in this little tale, since the words Sir, as in Sir Denis Mon, and Louvre curator, as in Louvre curator Pierre Rosenberg, in front of the names of the two art experts who reattributed and effectively renamed this painting, are also significant. 
the names, titles, and perceived status, academic as well as social, of those doing the naming can sometimes be equally significant. In these two pages from a 1988 exhibition catalogue of Italian Renaissance drawings at the Uffizi <coughs> Museum in Florence, we see, in fact, just how many different names and different kinds of names can be linked to a single sheet of paper not much bigger than the one that I'm reading from right now. But once again, which names are attached to the image and by whom makes a big difference. First of all, there's the name given to the sheet as a whole, its title, bust of a woman in profile and sketches for the bust of a child and for a man with a beard, recto, various studies, verso. Quite a mouthful, especially in contrast to the earliest name given to this drawing by someone, specifically the writer and artist Giorgio Vasari, <coughs> who may well have known the artist who originally drew it. His name for this drawing, which he grouped with two other similar images, was simply Three Pages of Heads. But there are lots of other names to be seen in the text. And I know you probably can't read them, but for example, lots and lots of names here, and then various ones scattered here um, into the text, um, including the names of places where the drawing has been exhibited in the 20th century, those of the impressive number of art historians dating back as far as 1862 who have discussed the image in print, and in the main body of the catalog entry, which actually continues onto a second page from what um, you see here, the names of collectors and scholars who have owned or assessed the drawing since the 16th century, including Renaissance figures such as Duke, uh, Grand Duke Francesco de' Medici and Vasari, as well as major 19th and 20th century art historians such as Giovanni Morelli, Heinrich Wölflin, Johannes Wilde, and Charles de Tolnay. In the context of today's focus on artists' names, though, perhaps most interesting is uh, of all is how the drawing's maker has been named and renamed. The catalog entry mentions, among others, Bacchiacca and Antonio Mini, and there are others as well, as possible authors of the sheet. Now, even for a specialist in Italian Renaissance art, Bacchiacca and Antonio Mini are not exactly names that trip off the tongue. But I suspect that what such a drawing might fetch at auction, or indeed the amount of time and attention a visitor would give to the sheet when displayed in an exhibition, would be measurably increased by the presence of yet another name at the head of the wall label or the catalogue entry, that of Michelangelo Buonarroti. However, the very fact that it could be given Michelangelo's name in this <coughs> exhibition and catalogue, rather than Bacchiacca or Antonio Mini, or indeed simply <coughs> labelled an anonymous copy of a lost Michelangelo original, as some earlier scholars had in fact suggested, was very much a function of the academic status and institutional positions held by the curators of the exhibition, one the director of the Uffizi Museum itself, the other professor of art history at the University of Michigan. Curators who in turn were themselves named on the front cover of the catalog. However, for better or worse, artists' names are a fact of life in much art historical scholarship. But this just makes it all the more important to understand the origins and implications of the very concept of the artist itself. In fact, our present day view of artists has been very much shaped by 19th century attitudes, for it was in this period that the emphasis decisively shifted from an artist's ars, that is, his or her skill or art in the sense of ability, to his or her individual creativity. In other words, there was a clear shift from valuing the art object as carefully crafted object to valuing most highly an artist's concept or idea and inevitably the related personal, biographical, and even psychological traits that were believed to have shaped this idea. So true artists, and I'm showing you here actually, I'll, I'll explain in a minute, but it's a kind of 19th century romantic poet who's kind of literally dead in a garret, which is kind of 
the, the romantic idea of the artist and the kind of creative genius. So true artists were now most often prized for their imagination, inventiveness, spontaneity, and creative self-expression, even if, or perhaps, they, perhaps especially if, these traits led to artists living unconventional lives, often touched by a kind of creative madness or genius that led them to being inevitably misunderstood, ignored, and maltreated by most of their comparatively dull, unimaginative, conventional, and bourgeois contemporaries. This is, in short, the starving artist in a garret model of being an artist, a stereotype perfectly embodied in this mid-19th century painting depicting the death of the romantic poet Thomas Chatterton, who committed suicide in 1770, aged only 18, penniless, misunderstood, and literally living in a garret, if Henry Wallace's painting is to be believed. Vincent van Gogh, whose self-portrait you see here, likewise conforms to this stereotype, having apparently sold almost not a single painting during his lifetime to his rather baffled and implicitly <coughs> narrow-minded bourgeois contemporaries, as well as being mentally unstable, to the point of cutting off his own ear in a fit of madness in 1809, <coughs> and in an echo of Chatterton's death, also committing suicide a year later. I mean, I think you've probably all heard this kind of story. Not that it's not true, but it becomes a kind of almost a cliche of a certain kind of view of the artist. <coughs> the assumption that a true or proper artist is inevitably an eccentric genius continues to be very much in evidence in our own time, as seen in the strange and enigmatic figure of Andy Warhol, you see in a self-portrait on the left, or the gossip column antics of England's own Tracy Emin, seen on the right in another self-portrait. However, some aspects of this notion of the artist, and implicitly of the nature of artistic genius, can be dated back much earlier than the 19th century. Indeed, it was in the 15th and especially the 16th century that one begins to see the emergence of what has been called the super artist as genius. In the case of a very small, and we must remember that this is an exception even in this period, or certainly in this period, um, but this very small number of so-called super artists, such as Dürer, Leonardo, or Michelangelo, some of the characteristics associated with the 19th century artist's genius can already be seen. So, for example, Michelangelo's temper in brooding, melancholic fits which led to his nose being broken in a youthful fight with a fellow artist, his astonishing creativity and artistic innovation, even his eccentric personal habits, such as wearing his leather boots for so long that they literally had to be cut off of his festering skin. All these kind of stories feature in contemporary biographies and depictions, such as, for example, in brooding portraits, um, like uh, the one on the left, where you can also see his broken nose, which is kind of his, one of his signature uh, features of his image, or the possible portrait in um, the famous painting of Cimeno, uh, Raphael's School of Athens, um, where this is sometimes said to be a portrait of Michelangelo. Again, he's brooding, he's in the classic pose of the melancholic with his sort of head resting on his hand. He's got possibly that broken nose, and potentially even those festering boots that kind of, again, are one of those stories. I'm wearing boots today, I'm wondering. No, they're not festering yet. But, um, so, uh, you know, these kind of images um, of the kind of brooding eccentric artist. Likewise, both Michelangelo and the Northern Renaissance's most famous super artist, Alois Dürer, happily encouraged a view of their creative powers as being divine and godlike. Michelangelo was even known in his own lifetime as Il Divino, or the Divine One, and repeatedly reminded his contemporaries through his poems and through images, like his very famous creation of Adam, <coughs> that he, as a godlike artist, was able to give life itself to the figures he portrayed. Vasari, when writing about Michelangelo's iconic statue of David, even explicitly stated that the artist's transformation of an old botched piece of marble into an incredibly expressive figure was the, quote, 
revival of a dead thing and a veritable miracle. So again, it's a repeated theme um, of uh, Michelangelo and other artists of this particular sort of group of these super artists sort of being able to give life um, <coughs> to their material. In the case of Dürer, the point was made perhaps even more explicitly in his famous self-portrait of 1500 on the left, which um, in its physiognomy and full frontal pose was clearly meant to echo well-known iconic images of Christ, such as the one seen in the print, also by Dürer, on the right, in which Christ's face is literally, uh, is likewise shown frontally and wearing the crown of thorns on a fluttering cloth known as the Vera icon or true image, helpfully held aloft here by two angels. Dürer's prints and paintings also highlight another aspect of the status of artists and artists' names in the Renaissance. Whereas in past centuries, artists' names had generally not been recorded for posterity and had almost never appeared on the individual works they had produced, by the 16th century artists, especially super-artists like Dürer, seeking to distinguish themselves from their artisan or craftsman brethren, began to sign their paintings, sculptures, prints, and sometimes even drawings. Significantly, Dürer's famous A.D. Albrecht Dürer monogram appears both in his self-portrait and in the print on the right. Uh, I hope you can see the little A.D. here, and here it is again. In the latter case, on the print, in fact, directly beneath the face of Christ himself, thereby implying yet another link between artistic and divine creation. Similarly, in this well-known engraving by Dürer, Adam, the first human made by God, holds in his hand a sign very clearly stating, quote, made, facebit uh, in, uh, in Latin, made by Albrecht Dürer of Nuremberg. But whether it was the print or Adam himself that had been made by the implicitly godlike artist is left somewhat ambiguous, and perhaps intentionally so. Absolutely unambiguous is the role played by Dürer's name, or rather his monogram, in one of the first ever instances of artistic <coughs> copyright violation. In this case, the Italian Renaissance artist uh, Marcantonio Raimondi, who was a sort of pupil and uh, a student of Raphael's, Raimondi copied, or perhaps we should say forged, some of Dürer's prints, including the woodcut you see here, with the AD monogram visible under the seated figure of Christ as the Man of Sorrows. And I hope you can just see here it's carved into this um, uh, print by Dürer. The legal scuffle that ensued resulted in a decision allowing Marcantonio's copies to continue being printed, but only if they appeared without the AD monogram. Uh, and I think you can see here that uh, this is the kind of approved after the sort of legal fight because um, of course it isn't copyright law in the way we know it um, at this point, it's just sort of beginning to be developed. In any case, you can almost see where he's kind of scratched out the AD here, so you can continue printing the image, but you can't kind of brand it with the AD. That becomes, you know, that's not allowed. So it was the presence or absence of the artist's name that seems to have been the key point of contention. For a Renaissance super artist like Dürer, his monogram was like McDonald's Golden Arches or Chanel's Double C today. An, an unambiguous guarantee of artistic quality through what we might call name branding. It was also precisely to eliminate any ambiguity about authorship that Michelangelo decided belatedly to sign his name <coughs> on one of his most important early sculptures, the famous marble Pietà in the Vatican. Vasari, in his Life of Michelangelo, describes the young artist's anger upon hearing a loudmouthed Lombard claim that the work had been made by our Gobbo of Milan. No idea who that's supposed to be, but it, it, it clearly wasn't Michelangelo. 
So later that night, at least according to Vasari, Michelangelo rapidly chiseled his name on the sash across the Virgin's chest, thereby giving very prominently and very permanently um, uh, proof of his authorship and that he could never again be denied. The very idea of signing one's name is a reflection of a new understanding of the status of the artist, a concept that began to be articulated in the 15th century by the sculptor and writer Lorenzo Ghiberti and was fully expounded in perhaps the most influential history of art, or at least Western art, ever written, Vasari's Lives of the Painters, Sculptors, and Architects, first published in 1550 and again in a revised edition in 1568. I say the most influential because so many of the approaches first codified in Vasari's lives have been and still continue to be the basis for how much art history is written. For instance, it is only very recently that scholars have seriously begun to question the notion of artistic progress, of art apparently progressing teleologically towards some sort of unstated but implicit goal, first of naturalism and then, especially after the emergence of photography, of formal and iconographic innovation for its own sake. Although Ghiberti had already begun to develop his own preliminary model of artistic progress in the mid-15th century, it was Vasari's slightly later grand narrative of art's history that became a key source of inspiration for the following five centuries of writing about art as something progressive and defined through a succession of increasingly innovative and inventive named artists. I'm showing you here um, two frontispieces, or uh, two uh, illustrated uh, pages from the second edition of Vasari's Lives, the 1568 edition. But Vasari's model is a complex one, which raises as many questions as it answers. First of all, by reading the prefaces to each of the three sections of his Lives of the Artists, one realizes that the visual arts can go down as well as up in terms of their quality, style, and innovation. So Vasari describes the history of ancient art as being like the human life cycle, in which youth is followed first by maturity and then inevitably by decline and death. Or, in Vasari's own words, the arts, like human beings themselves, are born, grow up, become old, and die. <coughs> a similar trajectory is applied to the art of his own epoch, broadly defined, which begins with what he calls the artists of the first period, such as Giotto, whose portrait you see um, on the left in the 1568 edition of his lives. As Vasari says, this first wave, wave of artists, quote, fell a long way short of perfection, but all the same, they did mark a new beginning. That is, a new beginning after what he felt had been centuries of post-classical decadence and decay. Effectively, Vasari was giving the artists of this first age, who worked primarily in the 14th century, the equivalent of a Best Newcomer Award, even stating explicitly that they shouldn't be judged by the highest standards of art, but rather only in comparison to the medieval, or in his words, barbaric art that immediately preceded it. And I say this is all Vasari's point of view. I don't think it's actually a right description of the medieval period, but there you go. That's how he's trying to set up the difference between that and the Renaissance. Vasari's second period covers most of the 15th century. And although Vasari admits that, quote, there was clearly a considerable improvement in invention and execution with more design, better style, and a more careful finish, even so there was no one artist perfect in everything. So to continue our school prize-giving metaphor then, this age would have been given maybe the most improved award. But there are no qualifications needed for the third period, which encompassed Vasari's own 16th century contemporaries, such as Rosso Fiorentino, whose portrait in the lives you see on the right, and who was part of an age that, in Vasari's eyes, 
clearly merited the Most Valuable Player Award, or maybe even an Olympic gold medal. For by the 16th century, according to Vasari, art had, quote, achieved everything possible in the imitation of nature and has progressed so far that it has more reason to fear slipping back than to expect ever to make further advances. By sticking to his biological model, even when discussing the art of his own day, Vasari implicitly admitted that, having reached a peak, the visual arts would presumably and unavoidably soon fall into a period of decline and decay. But for the time being, Vasari avoided musing on this sad fact and instead focused his attention on constructing his lives so as to culminate in an over-the-top celebration of the most super of the super artists, namely the divine Michelangelo, whose work in painting, sculpture, and architecture not only reached, but actually surpassed Vasari's two measures of perfection, nature and the antique. In his life of Michelangelo, Vasari displays both the strengths and weaknesses of his approach. Having introduced each of his three sections with grand overviews of the period in question, he then states that it was not his intention, quote, to compile a list of artists and their works. But by using the individual artistic biography as his basic unit of organization, in practice it was the individual artist who became the focus of attention a strategy that has remained at the heart of much artistical writing until really quite recently. But this approach does allow him to make one of his key points, namely the, that proper intellectual respect, high social status, and generous financial rewards should be accorded to artists, a category that not at all coincidentally also included Vasari himself as a practicing artist. And in fact, I'm showing you here one of um, Vasari's own paintings, um, which you know, we can also argue, again, um, shows him and you know, others as well, but sort of inflating or, or being eager to inflate the status of the artist. Um, does anyone happen to know what this is an image of? It's one painting, but does anyone know who it might be painting? No, okay, it's a good story to know. It's the story, apocryphal story of St. Luke, so one of the four evangelists, um, who supposedly is an artist, um, and uh, is uh, supposedly visited in his studio by none other than uh, the Virgin Mary and baby Jesus, and then he paints this sort of perfect portrait of her, um, and then I guess she flips back off, and his symbol is, is the bull. So he's the patron saint of artists, at least in the kind of um, uh, European tradition, and so here's a painting by Vasari of kind of the ultimate kind of divine artist who literally <coughs> has um, contact with, uh, with God and, and the mother of God, and then paints this perfect painting um, of her. And it becomes actually the story, um, just like the Vera icon, I showed you the sort of fluttering image of Christ, the whole story that, that's based on um, the story of the crucifixion that St. Veronica, Vera icon, puts the uh, <coughs> cloth to Christ's face and when he's on his way to being crucified, and the imprint in his face um, then becomes this idea that it becomes a model um, for a whole series of, of, of uh, paintings. And similarly, the supposed St. Luke portrait of the Virgin and Child becomes a model for a lot of other paintings, and so you get a lot of um, Byzantine and uh, sort of medieval icons that then get into these stories that they are actually the painting painted by Luke, or that this is actually either the, paint, the, the cloth of uh, Christ's face impression or based directly on that. So there's a whole sort of interesting story there about the kind of contact with the divinity through art um, that continues um, to then be reproduced, if not the actual painting itself. Anyway, the point here is, is that Vasari is um, showing us in his own work um, the kind of high status that's, that's accorded to artists, you know, even to the point of, of um, directly uh, you know, communing with, with God and with the saints. 
The ever more lofty status of the divine, or at least semi-divine artist, who Vasari was eager to distinguish from what he saw as lowly artisans and mere craftsmen, is also suggested in the life of Michelangelo by the Super Artists Association from an early age with the great and the good of his time. As Vasari tells us, when just a boy, Michelangelo was invited to join the great Lorenzo de' Medici at table, um, while as a young man, um, sorry, a table, while as a young man who had by this point um, carved his famous marble David, he was willing and able to engage with noblemen, cardinals, and even popes as his equals. <coughs> so right as a boy, he's already having kind of dinner and lunch with Lorenzo Medici, and then as he gets older, he starts to, you know, basically be on, on equal social terms with aristocrats um, and even popes. But it is also in this important respect that early modern artists like Michelangelo differ from their romantic and post-romantic successors. That is, while the latter's biographies are often characterized by a constant and consistent rejection by the mainstream and elite of the day, who simply can't understand their avant-gardeness, and that's kind of the point of being avant-garde, right, is that, you know, bourgeois society doesn't understand you, and you end up in a garret, um, and only famous after your death. Um, but this is quite different in the case of Renaissance super-artists, because it was precisely by interacting with the contemporary elite as equals and by being rewarded by the elite financially and socially, that is often being given titles and so forth, that artists such as Dürer and Michelangelo could avoid starving in garrets as outcasts from bourgeois society. In fact, there's a recent book by the art historian Rab Hatfield has proved in great detail just how rich Michelangelo was by the time he died. The early modern artists could, however, adopt many of the same moody eccentricities, though perhaps not the stigma of social exclusion, associated with the stereotypical romantic, modern, and to some extent, postmodern artists. And I think it might be interesting to think about um, how contemporary kind of superstar artists, something you people like, well, Tracy Emin or Damien Hirst, or sort of the big names, are in some ways maybe closer to the Renaissance model of, you know, hobnobbing with the rich and famous, getting very wealthy and all that, and that kind of the, the romantic artist idea is maybe something that's had its day, or, you know, that, that certainly um, is maybe being played with by more recent artists who in some ways <coughs> have the kind of eccentricities and, um, and innovativeness, uh, conceptual innovativeness associated with the Renaissance artists and the Romantic artists, but perhaps socially and financially closer <coughs> to the Renaissance than to the Romantic and modernist artists. In any case, something to think about. In his life of Michelangelo, Vasari deploys many of the tools that still form the basis for much present-day art historical scholarship by considering issues such as provenance, patronage, iconography, artistic antecedents, and stylistic analysis. So, for instance, he tells us how fragments of one of Michelangelo's cartoons ended up in the collection of a Mantuan nobleman. While the artist's often stormy interaction with his elite patrons is a topic returned to again and again throughout the life. Similarly, Vasari describes Michelangelo copying the works of two of the heroes of the first and second sections of his book, namely Giotto and Masaccio. And amazingly, drawings by the young Michelangelo, after both of these predecessors, still survive, including the sketch on the left, drawn by Michelangelo when he was only about 14 years old, and which he had copied from figures in one of Giotto's frescoes at Santa Croce in Florence, which you see on the right. So it's this pair is copied from the fresco here that he would have known in Florence. But Vasari's account also highlights some of the potential problems of focusing so relentlessly on the artist as an individual. The very survival of such fairly awkward sketches, like the one by Michelangelo on the left, confirmed Vasari's claims that such scraps and fragments were treated almost like precious and holy relics. 
and this again inevitably strove to elevate the artist <coughs> into a godlike figure, you know, whose, whose relics like the bones of a saint are being collected and sort of venerated. Because it's, it's not a bad drawing, but it's not sort of amazing. So it's being kept because it's by Michelangelo more than anything else. And although Vasari's intention in elevating Michelangelo to the status of a divinity was clearly to raise the status of all artists, including himself, the result is that such figures eventually started to begin, believe their own PR. Indeed, in the case of Michelangelo, he even hired a spin doctor named Condivi to write what we would call today a fully authorized biography <coughs> that tried to gloss over claims made in the first edition of Vasari's Lives that seemed to undermine Michelangelo's carefully constructed image as an artistic superhero and a divinely inspired and completely self-taught genius. Specifically, Michelangelo wanted to deny Vasari's claim in his first edition of The Lives that rather than having literally been God's gift to mankind, a claim fundamental to the evolving notion of artistic genius as being something innate and unteachable, Michelangelo had actually had a bit of training in the painter Domenico Ghirlandaio's workshop and had even copied some of his drawings, one of which you see here on the right. That's a um, Ghirlandaio drawing, that we, this kind of thing that Michelangelo copied. The result is that poor Vasari, without a doubt completely in awe of the great Michelangelo, was nevertheless forced to provide archival evidence <coughs> in the second edition of his Life of Michelangelo to support his claims. In what might well be the first ever use of documentary evidence in art historical scholarship, <coughs> Vasari's second edition quotes at length from a contract signed by Michelangelo's father, a document that clearly refutes Michelangelo's claim to have never had a teacher. According to Vasari, Condivi's authorized biography had asserted that Ghirlandaio had, quote, never assisted Michelangelo. But this is clearly false, as may be seen by the writing in the hand of Ludovico, Michelangelo's father, that runs thus. And Vasari is now quoting the document in the second edition of Lives. 1488. Know that this 1st of April, that I, Ludovico Buonarotto, apprenticed my son Michelangelo to Domenico Ghirlandaio and his brother David for the next three years with the following agreements that the said Michelangelo shall remain with them that time to learn to paint and practice his art. Significantly, Vasari's excursion into archival art history ends with the following phrase. I have made this digression in the interests of truth, and let this, let this suffice for the rest of the life. We will now return to the story. And this is precisely one of the great problems of Vasari's text, that in general, it is often more a collection of stories than of documented facts, with perhaps this exception or a few other exceptions, but a lot of it's about a kind of narrative structure as much as about kind of the truth, whatever that may be. <laughs> Although many students and art historians continue to assume that Vasari's text can be used with confidence as evidence for what really happened, in many instances, it is clear that the lives are as much an accumulation of hopes, desires, myths, and constructed ideologies as any work explicitly labeled fiction. Now, obviously, Vasari had an agenda when writing the lives, an agenda about raising the status of the artist and about the aims of art <coughs> itself, namely to imitate and ideally surpass both nature and antiquity. And it is this agenda that underlies some of the most obviously constructed elements of the lives. Ernst Chris and Otto Kurtz, I think I've uh, listed them um, on your handout, uh, the former a noted psychoanalyst and the latter a cultural <coughs> historian who worked at the Warburg Institute in London, wrote a very insightful book in 1934 exploring the notion of artists' lives as myths, or better, as fictional constructs. So, for instance, in a motif that can be traced back to classical writers such as Pliny, <coughs> Vasari repeatedly claims that artistic <coughs> talent is discovered by chance in childhood 
a strategy that supports his general assertion that artistic talent is something fundamentally innate rather than learned. Thus, although Vasari tries to prove that Michelangelo was trained by Ghirlandaio, he also emphasizes that Michelangelo's innate genius was already evident long before his apprenticeship began, and that, once in the master's workshop, he soon surpassed his teacher. And again, this is something that's repeated again and again in, in stories about artists. Even more common is the leitmotif of the artist who is discovered while tending sheep by a passerby who notices his untutored but nevertheless impressive sketches. We see this narrative in Vasari's life of Giotto, whose portrait in Vasari's book you see again on the left. Quote, Giotto, the son of a simple peasant, tended his father's flock and drew pictures of the animals on stones and in the sand. The older artist Cimabue, who happened to come along, recognized the shepherd's great talent, took him along, and saw to the training of the boy destined to become one of Italy's greatest artists." End quote. And I'm showing you a kind of random sheep picture, because I haven't got other sheep pictures. Not certainly the one that was um, you know, being drawn on stones and in the sand by Giotto. Now, I think we could just about believe the story of one artistically gifted shepherd boy. But, in a later section of the lives, Vasari tells the story, and again I use the word story advisedly, of the Sienese painter Becca Fumi, who is once again described as the son of a peasant, discovered this time by a Sienese nobleman while making drawings in the sand of the sheep he was tending. And Vasari gives nearly identical accounts about the early life and discovery of artistic talent in the cases of Andrea Sansovino and Andrea um, de Castagno as well. And I'm sorry, but for sketching shepherd boards, boys is just a bit too much of a coincidence in my view. But I don't think it's a case of Vasari being lazy. Rather, he uses such reoccurring motifs to support his agenda about the innate nature of artistic talent and genius. And incidentally, after Vasari's uh, life, I mean by other writers, the very same motif appears again in much later biographies of the Spanish Baroque painter Zubaran, whose painting The Lamb, in fact, is the one I show you on the right, and the early 19th century artist Goya, which both focus on the chance discovery of their artistic talent while sketching animals as young shepherd boys. Chris and Kurtz, who argued that such tales had an underlying psychological basis, even cite the story of a Japanese painter named uh, Murayama Okyo, whose talent was discovered when a passing samurai saw a paper sack Okio had painted stuck up on a tree. Though whether he'd painted a sheep on it or not, uh, we aren't told. In a somewhat more subtle way, the story also allows certain motifs to echo from one super artist's biography to the next. So he tells the tale of the young Michelangelo, who while studying this print by, um, of St. Anthony uh, Attacked by Devils, by the German artist Martin Schongauer, who's someone that, that Dürer also um, very much looked up to. Um, so having seen and studied this print, Michelangelo went out and bought strange-looking fish with curiously colored scales to help him draw the monstrous spirits. In a kind of similar echo in the life of Leonardo, Vasari claims that, again as a young boy, the artist painted a horrible and terrible monster after gathering lizards, newts, maggots, snakes, butterflies, locusts, bats, and other such animals. So he sort of again <coughs> makes a kind of fantasy of, of kind of a monster using kind of natural uh, fauna. So according to Vasari, both artists used local fauna to produce monstrous images as boys. And in Leonardo's case, Vasari even provides a pungent additional detail by telling us that Leonardo became so engrossed in drawing from his creepy crawly models that he didn't even notice the disgusting stench that developed as their carcasses started to rot. 
So, this, and I guess the point of that is that you, know, you give the little detail that makes it seem like, well, that must be true. But then again, you get these sort of echoes, and you think, well, really, are they all, I mean, maybe they all do. But at the point of this is being kind of highlighted across different artist biographies, again, the kind of young artist going out, um, searching uh, for inspiration and so forth, and these kind of repeated motifs with slight variations, and given just enough kind of local detail to make them seem convincing, um, or perhaps to, to, to um, remind us you know, of the differences as well as the similarities across the artists. Vasari's lives shaped many debates about art and artists in the following centuries. But Vasari, in turn, owed much of his agenda and his strategy of focusing <coughs> on individual artist biographies to his own predecessors, especially Pliny the Elder, the first century Roman writer who produced one of the earliest surviving accounts of individual painters, sculptors, and architects. Unlike Vasari, however, Pliny's lives of classical artists did not form a standalone history of art, but rather were a slightly eccentric excursus within a multi-volume description and analysis of the natural world in general. But since one of the principal aims of art for Pliny, as it would later be for Vasari, was to imitate or even surpass nature, it is perhaps not that surprising to find a discussion of artists who sought to do precisely this in a book about the natural world. Perhaps one of the most important anecdotes related by Pliny to support this underlying agenda is the famous tale of Zoixus and Parasios. According to Pliny, quote, Parasios, it is recorded, entered into a competition with Zoixus, who produced a picture of grapes so successfully represented that birds flew up to try to eat them. And I'm afraid this is not um, uh, uh, Parasius' uh, painting, but rather one by um, a 19th century American artist. But it's a good picture of grapes, I think. So that's kind of, you know, it's so realistic, it's so naturalistic that, that it can, you know, even birds are, um, you know, are under the illusion that these are real grapes. And now to continue, continue the story, quoting from Pliny again, whereupon Parasios himself produced, oh sorry, so it's Zeuxis that paints the grapes. So whereupon Parasios himself produced such a realistic picture of a curtain that Zeuxis, pr proud of the verdict of the birds upon his painting of grapes, requested that the curtain seen in Parasios' painting should be now drawn back and the picture itself displayed. And when he realized his mistake, that is when he realized that the curtain was actually only a painted fiction, with a modesty that did him honor, he yielded up the prize, saying that whereas he had deceived the birds, Parasius had deceived him, an artist. Um, and it, it's a kind of uh, interesting story. This is actually a painting um, attributed to Vermeer, which has a fictional curtain painting in front of it. And I'm, I'm sure it's, it's almost impossible to imagine that Vermeer didn't know this famous story, that you know, if you can deceive birds, it's one thing, but if you can make the artist or you know, a human viewer think, oh, I must fold this across. And, oh, look, it's not, you know, it's not really um, a curtain. Um, that would be, you know, the higher prize. And of course, this might look like a slightly odd painting to us, but we know that in the period, in the, in the Renaissance and the Baroque period, um, artworks on display were often covered by protective curtains. So it would have been particularly, you know, even though the, the story is, a, is a, an ancient one, it would have had a resonance with people like uh, Vermeer and other artists because, you know, they would have had this idea of you know, a fictional curtain um, playing off the idea that there might be a real curtain there um, as well. Now, perhaps not surprisingly, given what we've seen in Vasari's lives, similar anecdotes are related about artists working in the Renaissance and later, uh, about deception. So, for instance, the Italian writer Aretino describes a mother ewe bleating joyfully when she sees a lamb in a painting by Titian. Oh no, it's the sheep again. Likewise, a writer claimed that a dog barked at a portrait of its master painted by Dürer. And just to prove that it's not animals alone, but also like Zoix's people who could be fooled by such trompe paintings, 
Vasari describes a passerby paying homage to what they thought was the Pope himself, but actually was just a portrait by Titian left to dry in a window. While according to the writer Zucchero, a cardinal once tried to hand a pen to Raphael's portrait of Pope Leo X, seen here, in order to obtain the pontiff's signature before realizing his mistake. <coughs> Texts such as Pliny's also influenced later works of art, like those showing curtains in front of paintings, or images like this one, um, a late 15th century portrait of an artist and his wife, with a fly painted on the woman's headpiece. You can see there, there are other examples of this as well. Um, but the fly painted on the headpiece, which is presumably meant to trick the viewer into trying to swat it away um, before realizing that he or she has been fooled by the artist. And I think the fact that it's a portrait of an artist um, who's playing with this idea that, you know, my art is so good that I can make you, fool you into thinking that it's a real fly here is obviously part of the game. And I think, again, probably quite subconsciously thinking about <coughs> stories like those from Pliny. Pliny. The art historian Ernst Gombrich, in his book Art and Illusion, says that the best trompe l'oeil painting he ever saw was a very recent work depicting what seemed to be broken glass in front of a painting, as if the protective glass had been shattered, which suggests just how ongoing such leitmotifs can be, and how persistent the goal of illusionism and of imitating and even outdoing nature seems to remain even after two millennia. But all this is getting us slightly off track from our focus on the artist. Here too, however, the legacy of Pliny, transmitted through Vasari's lives and other biographically oriented writers, continues to be felt, since it was a classical author's descriptions of painters, such as the famous um, Apelles, uh, and sculptors, such as the famous um, Apelles, who felt free to talk uh, back to powerful rulers like Alexander the Great, who could have inspired Renaissance artists, such as Michelangelo, and those who wrote about him, to consider themselves likewise the equals of popes and princes. Pliny tells other tales about Apelles and Alexander, including one in which Apelles uses the emperor's mistress as a model. When Apelles falls in love with his beautiful sitter, Alexander very graciously hands her over to the painter, although needless to say whether the model mistress thought um, what she thought about being swapped uh, between an emperor and being sort of sent off to an artist um, hasn't really been recorded. Once again, however, an artist's status is affirmed by being treated as an equal by the most powerful man of his day, in this case, Alexander the Great. Equally revealing, though, is Pliny's closing sentence in relating this anecdote. Quote, Some believe that Alexander's mistress was the model for his painting of Aphrodite rising from the sea. Here we see in action what the literary scholars Wimsett and Beardsley called in 1946 the intentional fallacy. Although mainly associated with the rise of Romanticism, the fallacy they refer to is already implicit in Pliny's story, since an assumption is being made about how an artist's life experiences, in this case falling in love with the emperor's beautiful mistress who is also his model, how such life experiences are inevitably reflected in an artist's works, in this case the beautiful Aphrodite depicted in uh, Apelles' painting. And this, ultimately, is a key problem facing anyone who chooses to focus on artists and artistic biographies in art historical scholarship. The phenomenon was well um, alive in the case of the 19th and 20th century writings on Raphael, for example, whose every unknown female portrait, including the one you see on the right, has, it seems, been at one time or another said to depict his mistress. 
Vasari's enigmatic references to a <coughs> beloved mistress also inspired the early 19th century painter Angre to paint the charmingly ahistorical portrait of Raphael on the left, with his alleged mistress perched prettily on his knee, looking at a canvas of the so-called Fornarina, or baker's daughter, on the right, a painting that was at the time believed to depict Raphael's mysterious lover. So I don't know if you caught all that. So here we have um, one of the many unknown um, images of a woman that have um, repeatedly been associated with, uh, by Raphael, associated with um, this kind of famous, famous sort of the baker's daughter that Vasari mentioned as being his beloved um, mistress. No reason to think that that's who she is necessarily. <coughs> Um, Anger in the 19th century takes up this, uh, this little <coughs> myth. Here you see a little uh, detail of another Raphael painting by Anger. And here supposedly is Anger painting kind of reconstruction in his mind of Raphael with his mistress on his knee, who he is just painting. And you can just see the outline of um, her nude there. So there's a whole play there, and, and maybe um, I can't remember if I lectured all of you about um, sort of gender and, and gender issues in, in art. But you know the whole fact about kind of possessing the mistress is like possessing the, the art object, and there's a whole play between the artists possessing those that they paint, and also, of course, the owner of the art object kind of owning the painting, but also what's depicted in it. So that, you know, one could think about a bit more. But in any case, this is about this idea this of the kind of, that art must somehow reflect the biography of the artist. So if it's an unknown woman, don't know who she is, we know that there's some vague reference in, in Vasari to kind of a mistress who's the baker's daughter. Ah, must be the baker's daughter. Now, having been rather skeptical about this, <coughs> there is a kind of counterpoint to be made. Because in this particular case, um, uh, by Raphael, um, maybe it's a little <coughs> bit less fanciful than in most cases, because he does sign the painting on a band wrapped tightly around the sitter's bare arm, thereby laying claim not only to the authority, uh, to the authorship of the painting, but also a kind of ownership of the female model herself as well. So maybe it is his model, or maybe it's just about a general idea that the artist possesses kind of any model, um, at least artistically, if not literally. But like the stories of sketching shepherd boys, such links are rather too frequent for comfort, since artists almost inevitably seem to be sleeping with all of their unidentified female sitters, something that, strangely enough, is almost never suggested in the case of their unidentified male sitters, but we won't go there in too great detail. But the point is that biographical models of art history inevitably encourage this type of identification between artists and their art between artists' lives and biographies and how their works should be interpreted. And it was precisely this that Wimstadt and Beardsley saw as a fallacy, namely trying to read a work of art, whether it be a poem or a painting, and they're coming um, at this actually as literary scholars, as though um, these kind of artistic productions um, were really only or even mainly the product of an artist's biography, or more abstractly, his or her intentions or individual psychology. <coughs> This critique of traditional biographically based and artist-centered modes of interpretation was further developed in the later 1960s by the French theorists Roland Barthes and Michel Foucault. In Foucault's influential essay entitled, What is an Author? He quoted the playwright Samuel Beckett, who asked, what matter who's speaking, someone said, what matter who's speaking? I think that's the famous closing lines in it of Waiting for Godot, so maybe you must have studied that at some point. Anyway, the point is, who cares who's saying, who's the author? According to both Foucault and Barthes, it apparently really doesn't matter who's speaking, <coughs> since they claimed that not only are an artist's or author's intentions unrecoverable, how do we know what Raphael did or didn't really feel uh, or mean um, when he was painting this painting, but also that they are actually completely irrelevant. 
The meaning of a work of art, according to Bart and Foucault, should never reside in the biography or alleged intentions of its maker, but rather should be located in us as readers, viewers, and beholders. In other words, once an artwork exists, it is as though its maker ceases to exist, and instead it is those who receive it, encounter it, bring it to their own life experiences, who give it meaning. To paraphrase Bart, the birth of the beholder must be at the cost of the death of the artist. So this is saying basically, we shouldn't worry about what the artist did or didn't intend, how do we read this in terms of biography. This should be about reception. It should be about, you know, we remake the work of art continuously um, in, in how we interpret it. And that's where meaning um, and significance lies. <coughs> but as another uh, uh, scholar writing on this kind of subject, David Summers has pointed out more recently, it may be a mistake to try to eliminate biography and intentionality, however problematic they may be, and indeed the concept of the author or artist completely, since the problem isn't that intentions and artists don't actually exist. After all, for a work of art to exist, it must by definition have been made or selected intentionally by someone at some point in time and in some place. But rather the problem lies in how and whether we can recover these intentions, including those that the artist him or herself may not even be aware of a subject of great interest to scholars adopting psychoanalytic approaches. In other words, according to Summers, quote, the real question is how intentions are made visible and whether they are ever fully or even partially recoverable, not whether they actually existed in the first place. I think the problem of intentionality and the related issue of how and even whether one should use an artist's biography to try to interpret his or her art is well demonstrated by these two landscapes by Van Gogh. As I mentioned earlier, Van Gogh's biography has fascinated novelists, songwriters, film producers, and playwrights for over a century. As I've already discussed, his persona and life experiences seem to conform to many romantic stereotypes of a misunderstood and mad artist genius. Stereotypes <coughs> in certain aspects can be traced back to Vasari and even earlier. We have, however, seen why it pays to be wary of accepting such biographies at face value especially when they fit into pre-existing models a little too neatly for comfort. But on the other hand, can we ever completely ignore the artist and his life in the case of such paintings? <coughs> yes, of course, we can talk about their colors, the formal elements of the composition, maybe even the culturally specific implications of landscape as a genre in the later 19th century. But doesn't our understanding of these works change in some <coughs> subtle but profound and irreversible way if we realize that they were amongst the last works painted by Van Gogh before he committed suicide in 1890. And if this is the case, but the recovery of artistic intentionality remains problematic, what can we as art historians do? In other words, if we can never fully or even partially see the paintings through Van Gogh's own eyes, does that mean we should give up even trying to do so? Thank you.